thanks so much for joining Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta, and today we are welcomed by Quint Studer, who is the co-founder of Healthcare Plus Solutions Group. Thanks so much for being here, Quint. Oh, great to be here. Um, I said I've looked at all your guests. I'm just honored to be on the team. That really is a team approach. And I like how, you know, you wrote a book called The Calling, and then you're also focused on connecting people in healthcare back to their purpose. I think everybody wants to do the right thing and wants to help. So you're focused on that and then leadership training for those in healthcare. And when we were doing the brief pre-interview that we did, I like that you were saying we're misdiagnosing the, the healthcare leadership. So just tell us a little bit about your philosophy and what you're working on. When I got back, back into healthcare, a bit of a sabbatical, um, the pandemic caused what we all called, you know, it's been overused, the great resignation. So is there really a great resignation or not? Because I'm I'm all, I'm never like generalities. I like them to start, but I'd like to get down into analytics. I'm a diagnostician at heart. So when people say um, certain things, I want to dig a little bit deeper. And so what happened was during the pandemic, we had a great resignation. Did we or didn't we? Well, the answer is we did. Because if you look back to the experience level in a healthcare organization, and this has much, much impact. So, for example, in the area of leadership, um, I've not really found an organization that has less than 20 to 25 percent of people in a management position with less than three years. All of them have less than three years experience, at least 20 to 25 percent. That means one out of every four person is relatively new. And that's the best result. I was just in an organization with 800 leaders. And the CEO put up a, a sign that said 1,185 days. That's the last time the entire 800 managers got together in a room. This was a big healthcare system. And then I happened to find out that 43% of them were not in the room 1,185 days ago. They're brand new. So whenever you have newness in an organization, even experienced newness, now most of these managers are brand new to management. At least 50% of them are brand new. They were an hourly employee. Their boss quit during the pandemic. They got promoted. Then the other half of that is, yeah, I, I was a manager before, but I was a manager, now I'm a department director. I'm a department director, and now I'm a vice president. So how much does inexperience play into performance? And if you look at any industry, any industry outside of healthcare, experience has a huge impact on performance. And I think we've under or minimized how much that newness is causing us in healthcare. And then I think we even used the wrong approach. Because of the newness, because of the pandemic, almost every healthcare system I go to, their employee engagement has gotten worse for all sorts of you know valid reasons. We didn't have in the unit, we didn't have that, supplies, all the things. But when your results get worse in healthcare, our mentality is provide more. So we're taking these overwhelmed middle managers right now and giving them more to do, but our strategy is do less. How do we narrow the scope and make things doable? So I think the biggest impact I've seen in healthcare is we're underestimating the amount of new people that are in an organization. Yeah, Quint, I find that uh, actually so insightful because, as, as you may know, I work as a healthcare consultant by day, and oftentimes when we go into organizations, one of the biggest problems we find is the turnover, which I haven't thought of it as newness, as you're phrasing it, which I, I like that uh, that insight. Ultimately, 
we feel that organizations are not going to be able to be effective because they have so many people turning over. And I've thought of that as just maybe a part and parcel of healthcare. Maybe it's part of what you get to in the calling that ultimately people are just looking for their next opportunity or partly it's because of COVID. Uh, and so they're constantly cycling through. So no initiative really gets the kind of traction that it needs. Uh, the relationships really aren't being built uh, within the executive teams and with, with leadership, with management, with the physicians like they should be. Um, so I'm completely with you. I buy into that premise that the newness is creating a big challenge. Uh, so can you maybe dig into that a little bit deeper and say, is that because people are not taking it as a calling? Is that partly why you think this is happening? Or maybe the other side of it, which is the, how are you actually getting people to focus on doing less so they can make their jobs more manageable? Well, that's that could be the rest of the podcast. Let me try to bite it into bite-sized pieces. First of all, during the Great Resignation, the average CEO is in an organization six years, the average vice president, four years. And again, speaking recently, I said, the challenge we have is lack of consistency at the senior leadership level. So the new senior leader comes in and they have a tendency to throw out what was being done and bring in new stuff. Now, that's okay for the people that are new because they may not have to unlearn anything. But the great amount of hourly employees are not brand new. They've been there for a while. So I always say to people, when the new CEO comes in and announces his big new program or hers, they get a banner, they get a buzzword, they get some free food. There's a lot of sizzle. Doesn't mean the program's wrong, but people don't buy in because they don't buy in because we're not consistent. So in now another four or five years, we're going to have another new sizzle, a new program. That's why I think board of directors are vital for making sure the culture's there and how do they manage. So I think the resignation at the top is truly a little bit of people lost their calling. You know, when people enter healthcare, the beauty is we have a full emotional bank account. You want to see a motivated physician? Go to medical school when they get the white lab coat. That is a motivated physician. Their family is there. It is a dream. They're so, so excited. Now, that could be the last good day of medical school, but, you know, that's the emotional bank account. And then there's withdrawals. The next big one is their residency, their match. If you watch right now over the last couple of weeks, people are, I matched, I matched. They show a logo of the hospital or health system. They match behind, they match. They're all full emotional bank account. Then, then the next big one is their first shift. I just did my first shift. I've not seen one post on the second shift yet. And I think what happens in healthcare is we have withdrawals from our emotional bank account, as Stephen Covey wrote about in The Seven Essential Habits of Highly Effective People. And during COVID, there's been way more withdrawals. You're a senior leader. You're tired. You want to get supplies. You're dealing with cost factors. And you sort of look and say, maybe, maybe there's not that light at the end of the tunnel. And I was going to exit in five years, but I think I'll exit now. So that group exits. Then the group that knows they can't exit for all sorts of reasons now moves up a little thing. So we get into that inexperience. I also feel that through this process, because in healthcare, remember, we're geared to look at what's wrong, not what's right. 
So much came out of the middle manager's plate that they didn't know how to handle. So instead of explaining it as well as they could, they just say, I don't know, the senior executives. It's that we, they, that we, they. So when we go to organizations, we do, I'll give a few of them real quick. We do a lot of replenishment exercises. One of the first things we do is ask people to sit in tables and just ask, explain why they went into healthcare. And this could be a housekeeper, could be an accounting person. It doesn't have to, it's everybody that got into healthcare got in there for a calling. If I'm a housekeeper, it'd be a lot easier to go to a hotel and clean a room without a person in it than the person in it. It'd be a lot easier in a restaurant not to worry about nutritional value. So it's not just certain people, it's, it's everyone. Talking to an accountant, and they love the fact that they're part of healthcare. They're connecting the numbers to a calling or a purpose. So they enter with a full emotional bank account. So we have them go around the table and just say, why are you in healthcare? And they start sharing things they haven't shared. That's the first question, but that's just to get the soil tilled a little bit for the second question. The second question is, well, you know, let's not be victims because we get to be victims sometimes in healthcare. We say the word got and have to. I got to, I have to. One of the recommendations we always make is quit using the word got to or have to. I'm a big rewiring brain person because that's not easy for me. So I have to work on it all the time. Um, and so if somebody says I get to, I get to come to work. I get to do this. I get to save lives. You know, I get to do these things. I get to be with somebody at their most difficult times. So we then the second question is, well, you could work anywhere. I even ask them raise their hand if they've been contacted by somebody else to leave and almost all the hands go up. I say, well, you're smart. There must be some reason you're still working here, this place. Why? They start sharing why they like working at this organization. And they say things like, when I was going through my divorce, my coworkers held me together. When I was going through this, this is this. This is my family. I spend more time here with these people than I do my own family. And all of a sudden they start feeling like, not only do I like my job better, but I like the organization better. And they start looking at what's right instead of what's wrong. So those are some of the quick little replenishment techniques we do. The other one we do, which I think is really impactful. In healthcare, it's easy to say, how are you? And people say, fine. But that same person that's fine can try to take their life 10 hours later after they were saying they're fine. So we do something called the battery exercise that we talk about. We treat our phones so good, honest to gosh. We know where our phones are more than we know where our best friend is. We know where our phone is better than we know where our partner is. We keep it charged up. We decorate it. We protect it. We talk to it first thing in the morning. We touch it first thing at night. The last thing we do so I say, if you were a phone, where would your battery be right now? And people might say 80, they might say 50. But we find once they start having these safe conversations, we start learning. And if somebody says 50, you say, well, tell me why you're 50. Sometimes it's at home. And we have some of the best resources ever in healthcare for mental health that are underutilized. Less than 3% of people ever utilize a mental health service that's a healthcare employee, yet we have great resources to use. So what we try to do is put in replenishment type conversations that can help us truly provide better care, better self-care for the individual. So we have a lot of these replenishment techniques um, from gratitude list, 
And it's really been fascinating. I had one healthcare system, a, a chief medical officer, say they, they just don't have these type of conversations. It's usually what's wrong. What's wrong and I got to do this instead of what's right and I get to do this. So when you go into those places and you're working with them, trying to get them to really assess where they are to support them and connect with their cause, number one, what is the threshold on the battery that you start to become concerned? And number two, how are those things being able to connect to their passion and relate to their coworkers able to help them combat that experience, the inexperience and move on from there together? Yeah, well, those are really if you don't two really separate avenues, I'm going to go down for the battery exercise. It depends. Is it five days in a row or is it one day? Sometimes if somebody's low, you'll say, they say, well, my child was sick. I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. So is it a one or, you know, how often is it? Number two, we have to help people and give them resources to meet with people. So if somebody, if you were uh, Stephanie, uh, consistently low, I might ask you on the pain scale, with well-being being a one, two, three, stress be a four, five, six, or seven, and trauma be an eight, nine, or 10, where are you? And if you say a six, now we can talk about stress. And then we've got a tool from the Fallen Firefighters Foundation, which color codes people. And you would go in and say, hey, I'm sort of a light yellow right now. Then we actually have a toolkit we give away for free so you to access and go in. So it's having these safe conversations we haven't had before. And that's sort of what, what we find really works. We have some unbelievable, unbelievable things. We had one organization where the person was a zero. And in talking to her at lunch, she shared with me that everybody thought she was, thinks she's a recovering alcoholic and she relapsed during the pandemic. And she's afraid to let anyone know. Time I left, we had our arms around her. It's bringing love into healthcare where it should have always been. I think with the with the other aspect, the inexperience, we have this thing called a, a an OSAR, but we'd start with a self-assessment tool. So I'd sit down and talk about for that job, what are the skills you need? And what are the basic skills you need for that job? And then we have the person rank where they're at on a one through 10. And then their manager also ranks them. And then they sit down and collaboratively talk about well, what skill the most important? Because managers think they need to be an expert in all those skills, but they can't do it. It's impossible. So I might say, Stephanie, your biggest skill right now is scheduling. We've got to work on scheduling because you've got to reduce your agency, your overtime. We gave you a blank check for three years and that's sort of over right now. But we know you've never scheduled in today's environment. So let's talk about the skill you need is scheduling. The outcome we need is hitting the labor goal. Let's talk about the actions we can take together. Let me match you up with this mentor who's a good scheduler. So we really want to make sure, one, do we clarify the goal? Do we make sure you know the skill? Do we quantify what actions you're going to take? But more importantly, do we give you the resources? So all of a sudden, you went from a list of 12 skills to one skill scheduling. And it gives you that okay. And, and then there's the other thing is just actually finding out, is it doable? And, and that's the magic. We're just asking people to do things that aren't doable based on their experience level. So I was in an organization and I said, um, 
but what are you expected to do with patient experience? And she says, well, I'm supposed to see every patient every day. I said, how many patients do you have? She goes, 42. Well, that's a lot. I said, how many questions are you supposed to ask them? Five. I got a software tool that tells me to ask five. I said, what are the odds that you're going to ask 210 questions every day? She goes, it's absolutely zero. So she said they're going to feel guilty or lie on this rounding tool, which I'm not a big, I think we've gone overboard on all this documentation that we've made a transactional versus a relationship. So I said, well, what if you, could you maybe see every new admin and maybe ask them one question? She said, I can do that. And the question is, what's your biggest worry or concern right now? And if you talk to Dr. Tracy Echo on your podcast, that's I got that from his book, The Wonder Drug, is what's your biggest skill or concern or worry right now? I said, then if you have time, have try to get your discharges too to make sure when they leave that you did what you were supposed to do. But I said, let's just start out with one question, new admits, and you don't have to fill out a, a rounding tool. Just once a week, write a note to your manager, say, here's what I learned from rounding today. You could see the anxiety just leave that person's body because we made it doable. Um, University of Louisville, the manager said, there's too many meetings. So Tom Meller, the CEO, said three hours a day, there's absolutely no meetings or people could be on the units. So we have to also, sometimes the job at the top is to remove bear, to provide training and remove barriers, and we have to do both. Amazing, uh, Quint, uh, provide training, remove barriers, uh, provide replenishment and connection to purpose. In a short amount of time, you've already connected us into some incredibly powerful you know, uh, initiatives that, that I can easily see how they all start to connect. So have you seen that, Quint? I guess that's my question next is, have you seen it starting to connect at an organizational level? Have you seen organizations take on this in a big enough way that actually starts to make a difference for the overall outcomes? Yeah, I think, and again, the other thing in healthcare, we got to realize this ain't a sprint. You know, people love that shoe. You know, I remember Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. Because when you go up fast, you go down just as fast. So how do you methodically build things so stick? So a few of them. Cooperman Barnum is certainly in their emergency department. That Becker's just talked about the changes they've made. University of Louisville in the area of patient experience. Pry Health in Cincinnati. Really, the dent, uh, um, identifying communication increases because the thing we're seeing across the country right now is during the pandemic, people like started liking their middle manager more but they like their senior leader less. And the issue are, one, I don't know if I trust what I'm hearing and I don't feel I'm getting organizational support. So we're seeing movement in those arenas, but you have to purposefully talk to people about, um, you know, what is organizational support look like? I spoke with the national healthcare company and they were piling a lot of great resources into training and development of their leaders but you have to connect the dots. This is an investment we're making right now. This is an investment. This is organizational support to give you the skills to be successful. And I think the other thing is to truly show empathy for, for people, particularly all empathy for everyone, but particularly I'm, I'm, as you can tell, a middle manager fan. 
because, you know, it's sort of interesting, doctor. The other day, talking about a book, and somebody made the statement that most people in healthcare leadership have a master's in healthcare administration or MBA. So that's not my. The other day um, in Vernon, Texas, we have a small hospital, asked everybody in the room, about 30 of them in management, how many have an advanced degree in leadership or healthcare administration? And the only one was the CEO. So we know that most people in healthcare leadership rose through the ranks. They're a good accountant, now they're head of accounting. They're a good housekeeper. Now they're the supervisor of housekeeping. So we have to really take development and skill building as our responsibility. And, and everybody's a chief development officer. And I'll, I'll finish. I know you're. What happens in healthcare is we want to de de delegate something to someone else. So, with all good reasons, we're going to create a training department. I like that's great, but you cannot then give away the responsibility for training and developing those that report to you. So I tell, if you're in leadership, you're a chief development officer and you're in charge of developing the people that report to you. So much of what you're talking about reminds me of one interview that we did with Dr. Delila Lewis, D Dr. Delila Lewis, who is the division chief for pediatric neurology at the Medical University of South Carolina. And Apoorva and I absolutely loved her and her story stood out because she they couldn't hire this position for a year. Nobody wanted to touch it because it had a negative reputation of like, oh, no, there's too long for the for the patient wait times and all these things. And she has a military background and she was ready for that challenge. She took it in there and she said, you know, communication was such a big thing because she didn't accept them just saying, OK, this is how it's always been done. She'd say, but why? you know, who can I talk to? And then she'd go and talk to them and say, hey, you know, here's the situation. Can we do this this way? And they would then break down the barrier. So it wasn't that they couldn't. It was that, you know, maybe people didn't ask or they were afraid to ask. It was that breakdown in communication. And then we also asked her if she still sees patients or if she's just, you know, really focused on the management and the leadership end. And she said, no, I, I want to be there. I want to see these patients and I want to know what my staff is dealing with. So it encompassed so many of the things, but like the way that she talked about the how her team transformed and the department transformed, the, the wait times for patients went from months down to just a few, something like 10 days. It was a ridiculous transformation very quickly, but it's incorporating all the things you're talking about, communicating with people properly, thinking about things a new way, collaborating, and, you know, in a way it's being brave. It really is bravery. Well, there are great organizations. I love MUSC. And I remember years ago, again, we're working with them again right now, in fact, is um, uh, a, a, a physician got up on stage and said, I always thought I was a high performer. I am maybe in clinical care, but not leadership. And she said, I now held up the mirror and realized I need to get better. And I think what you caught too, and you know, you know, most, if you talk to people, um, physicians usually at the administrative level always still want some type of clinical practice because that gives them the feeling of knowing what it's like on this side, knowing what it's you're going through. So one of the challenges or things we always make sure is the senior executives have to do everything they're asking everyone else to do. So if you've got everyone else doing these things, you've got to do it too. Because that's people look at, are they doing it? Are they doing it? Are they doing it? 
You know, I'm, I'm just pondering on the last response that you had, and maybe that'll be my final question is like, what is it that when you said MUSC is a great organization, you mentioned a few other names of organizations that are really starting to deliver results. Is there something distinct that you think is happening there? Is it in terms of organizational culture or is it the longevity of the executive team? Or is there something about the executives in, their, in terms of their leadership style that's particularly making them more uh, well-suited to trying to drive the kind of change that you're advocating for? You know, thank you for that question, because I don't know if I've ever had that before, but it did make me think about, you know, Tom Miller at UofL, um, you know, Mark Clement and all these people we deal with. I think they have a real good ability to be self-aware. So I don't think they 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 don't listen to the noise around them that tells them how what a great job they're doing. They don't listen to the noise around them that says, oh, you're on board, you're right. I think they have a tremendous ability to be self-aware and look at the data and say, even though we think we're better, we're really not because the data doesn't take us. Number two, I think they have strong empathy. I think they have they understand. I remember Tom Meller just emotionally understanding why he, that he's so concerned about his middle managers, that he knows how they're being squeezed. He knows they're new and how can we help them be successful? So I think there's self-awareness. I think there's empathy, but then I also think there's accountability. So um, again, Mark Clement at TriHealth um, got up in front of all his 900 leaders and said, do you know a four letter word for accountability? And he says, it's love. He said, if you love the mission of your organization, you will hold yourself and others accountable. If you love the patients that we serve, you will hold yourself and others accountable. If you love those that we lead, we'll hold ourselves and others accountable. So I think all three of them have an ability to have self-awareness, empathy, and then truly a little more than that, they believe in their mission strong enough that they will make themselves uncomfortable at times. Because part of this is saying, I've got to change. I've got to be better. It's not about you. It's about me. My final question is, it could be the answer to your last question. I'm not sure. What is the number one underestimated tool that people have to make this transformation within their own leadership or within a team? This is going to sound really pathetic, but I don't think it is. I think it's reward and recognition. I, I think when you look at the latest research, people don't feel recognized. Now, when you ask the managers, do you feel you recognize the people? They usually say we do. But you ask the employees, do you feel recognized? They don't. And so I, I think the biggest underestimated tool is, is recognition. And I don't mean the recognition, hey, y'all do a good job. I think the day-to-day -day recognition that ties it back to specific specific behavior. I, I told a story in uh, a new book coming out called The Human Margin with Catherine Mason. And I said, when I was at a hospital, I wanted every employee to get a handwritten thank you note from me. Okay. And I divided it up. And do you know if I wrote everyone a thank you note and I wrote like 10 or 15 a week, it would take four years for that one person. So if somebody said to me, are you recognizing me? I said, yeah, you're not kidding. I'm writing all these thank you notes. But what about the person that doesn't get one? You know how many thank you notes they think I'm writing? Zero. So we sometimes 
minimize our reward and recognition like we only got so much of it now it has to be specific has to be individualized and has to be authentic i think the number one tool we really have have missed is that recognition piece and it works and it also creates that sense of belonging which is what people want that's the other replenisher we do we ask people tell us a time when you felt this was the place for you you really belonged and then not only do they tell that story but we start hearing that story and we know ah they felt they belonged when they were asked to do this we got to ask them to do this so they felt this so we're always looking again we call it n equals one we have to treat it just like we treat every patient as an individual we got to treat every person part of the workforce as an individual thank you so much for being here and having this conversation with us Oh, I, when I got the invite, I was just thrilled. I'm very grateful. You, you filled up one of my buckets. Thank you. Oh, so kind. So kind, Quentin. Obviously, you know, it's such a thrill for me personally. So really uh, very grateful that you decided to accept. And uh, we learned a lot in these uh, 25 minutes. Thank you. And thank you all for watching. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.